It was a day like any other. That's how it felt when I got up around 6.30 and showered, started to get the medications ready. I had no idea that by the evening I would be alone and angry without knowing who to blame, but blaming myself. Now I think back, the first sign something was not right came the day before, only I didn't spot the signs. Mum was confused, tense. When I tried to give her a drink, she gripped my hand hard, digging her nails in like she meant to hurt. With dementia, you expect mood changes, and you can't easily ask for an explanation. When I spoke to her, she didn't hear me anyway, or if she did, she didn't react. But then some days are like that. By the evening, I was tired, and she was tired too. When I took her some food in bed, she didn't eat much. I had to scrape most of the cold macaroni cheese into the bin. That sometimes happens, so I didn't make much of that either. The next morning, though, it was hard to wake her. Her eyes opened, but there was a stranger behind them. She'd gone to another place, and I had no idea where that place was. When the carer arrived at eight o'clock, it was Carrie who came. I said I wasn't sure what was going on, but I thought maybe something was. When we began to change Mum's pad, soaked from the night, the urine was dark brown and smelt strong. Offensive was the word Carrie used. It's a medical term. It sounded like a judgment on Mum, and maybe, I thought, on me and my care. Probably a UTI, Carrie said. I knew what the word meant. Urinary tract infection. Mum had had them before, both when she was with my father and in the care home. UTIs are a normal hazard for older people, especially those who are bedridden or incontinent or both. For some reason I hadn't expected one so soon. Maybe I'd done something or not done something. But I knew straight away Carrie was right, even though all we had to go on was the urine and the way Mum was, confused, anxious, out of it, even though the difference in her was only one of degree from the everyday symptoms of her dementia. Carrie had to go on to her next client, so I called the doctor. He came maybe two hours later, cramming us in with a lot of house calls that morning, by which time Mum was sleeping, or maybe even unconscious. She was certainly hard to wake, harder even than she had been earlier in the morning. Taking her blood pressure, listening to her chest through a stethoscope, the doctor pressing on her tummy with his fingers searching for any pain, did little to bring her round. He was measuring her blood oxygen levels. 79%. The doctor said that was low, low enough that he did it again. Then he stood and stared for a moment. Her temperature is low too, he said, just a degree or so, but together with the oxygen levels, it could be a problem. I had no idea what kind of problem he meant, so I asked. He told me sepsis. I'd heard that term too. The doctor said it was a sudden release of chemicals by the body designed to fight infection, only it causes widespread inflammation that can be harmful, especially to someone like mum with a weak immune system due to age and illness. The doctor said sepsis could lead to organ failure. He said it could happen quite quickly, and it would be best to call in the paramedics and get mum to hospital just in case. 
He said the doctors there would also be able to isolate the bug in her bladder and give her stronger intravenous antibiotics, something he couldn't do. He said not to worry. But I did worry. Of course I did. The paramedics arrived, calm, almost nonchalant in their green uniforms, with bags of kit and a lot of forms to fill in. One asked me questions, and the other casually toured the house, looking for the best way to get the ambulance stretcher in. They'd come quickly, maybe an hour after the doctor left, and they had questions. When the questions were done, they told me I should pack a bag. Anything mum might need in hospital. Nightclothes, toothbrush, slippers, whatever. So I did that. I used the same shoulder bag I'd used for taking things to my father when he was in hospital, just before he died there. The paramedics strapped mum to the stretcher and put the metal guardrails up. They got her out through the conservatory doors and by the garden path to the ambulance. They said I could follow if I wanted to. They didn't seem to think it was necessary, but I thought it was. I explained at the accident and emergency reception that Mum had just been brought in, but they said she hadn't. Then the receptionist said she was there, just not registered yet. I said I needed to be with Mum because she had dementia. She made a note of that and directed me through the doors to one side and said she'd press the access button to let me through. The paramedics were still by Mum's gurney, parked in a corridor, waiting with quite a few others. Some were lying down like Mum, some were sitting on chairs or in wheelchairs. The paramedics soon left. I stood with the bag in one hand, holding Mum's hand with the other, and we waited. After a little while, a nurse came with a porter. He looked tired, but with the nurse leading the way, he wheeled Mum expertly through the metal-clad doors on his own, refusing my help. The porter left us in a booth. Like half a dozen other booths we passed on the way, some with their curtains open so you could see in, some closed. He left our curtain open. There was a chair in the booth, but the gurney was set high, so if I sat I couldn't see Mum, so I stayed standing. Her eyes were mostly closed, but she wasn't sleeping. Her lips were moving, no words I could make out. She felt hot to the touch, and she was flushed in her cheeks and down the side of her neck, like a rash. I hadn't thought to bring a bottle of water, and I wondered if there was a shop or a machine where I could buy one, but I didn't want to leave her alone. Maybe twenty minutes later, I can't be sure. Time is warped in these situations. A nurse or a doctor with a clipboard pulled back the curtain and looked for the name of the patient in her paperwork. Who is this, she said. She didn't introduce herself. I said my mother's name in full. She asked some questions and filled in a sheet of paper with my answers and said a doctor would see mum on the admissions ward. So I guessed she was a nurse from the way she said doctor, but I never did find out. She went and reappeared ten minutes later with a porter, a different one from the first guy. The porter pressed hard on a pedal to release the gurney's brake, and we started down the corridor. In the admissions ward, there were other people on other gurneys. Half an hour passed. Then a doctor came. She was young, smartly dressed, and she didn't waste much time on bedside manner. She seemed hassled. She too had questions to ask, and more forms to fill in, so she set straight to it. A check on the name, date of birth, marital status, next of kin, 
existing medical conditions, a history of medical conditions, known allergies, smoker or non-smoker. It was the smoking thing that stopped me dead. She repeated the question and I shook my head. Non-smoker, she asked. I struggled to answer. No, no, I said. Then yes, I mean yes. The doctor looked at me. I said, look, can't these questions wait? We've been here a long time now. Mum needs a drink, some water, anything. And I'd like someone to examine her. I said I wouldn't answer any more questions until something was done. I probably looked angry. I know I felt hot and tired. So she went away. A little while later, another doctor appeared. He was older, and he also had a stethoscope round his neck, as they do. But he had no paperwork, and he introduced himself. He even said hello to Mum, though she didn't hear him. I told him what I'd done, but it was clear to me he already knew. It was probably the reason he was there. He said not to worry. They'd get to the questions later, and he said a nurse was coming with some water from a machine. I apologised. He said it was okay. He said we'd get Mum to a ward and sort things out later. He said we like that, but I didn't mind as long as things got moving. Mum was put on a regular ward with a saline drip feeding into the back of her wrist, leading to a bag of fluid on a metal stand and what looked like a green plastic tap taped to her skin. It was six or seven hours now after I'd called the doctor, maybe four hours after we got to the hospital. Mum looked peaceful and properly asleep for the first time. I wondered if she looked peaceful because the drip was doing its thing or because she was dying. The ward sisters let me sit with her until supper time came around and I took a yoghurt the catering lady offered. I took a coffee for me and some juice with a straw for Mum. I got some help to raise the back of the bed and Mum was eventually awake enough to take some juice and a little of the yoghurt. It was now six o'clock. The lady with the trolley had come by picked up the plates and rubbish, and Mum was resting again. Visiting time had started officially, so now I was no longer the only person sitting by a patient's bed. There were family or friends by other beds now, chairs pulled around to face whoever it was in the bed. Soon, though, the other visitors left. The nurse's station had table lights on, and there was a hush about the main ward, and with the neon strip lights off, a kind of twilight. There was nothing more I could do. Mum was sleeping. It was time to go. It was pretty much dark when I left the hospital by the main entrance. The sky was a deep purple, and I walked under the yellow streetlights and paid the ticket at the machine. There were so few cars by that time, mine was easy to find, and once I was clear of the barrier, I set off home, my mind a blank. I tried to think what I should do next, but nothing much came. Phone my sister, perhaps, and tell her what? That everything would be okay? Would everything be okay? Could I say that to her? When I got back to the house, the stillness of the place hit me. There's something different about the quiet of being alone in a house. It's a strange kind of quiet, more like a noise you can't hear. Felt like the place had been robbed, or there'd been a death. I knew I had to call my sister, so I did. She was at work. I was quick and reassuring, though she was worried. 
After I put the phone down, I had a drink, gin, I think. I suppose I came down too fast, because I began to wonder again if my mother was going to die. People do die in their sleep. They die when they're alone. My dad did. Maybe Mum wouldn't die tonight. But maybe she would soon. And if she did, I would feel responsible, even though I wasn't. It was not my fault. I knew that. And there was nothing I could do now to save her or make her well. She was no longer in my care. She was in their care. The doctors and nurses, the professionals who were paid to care and to save lives. All of them strangers, who didn't know my mother, and wouldn't be able to get to know her because the sepsis, if that's what it was, would disrupt her ability to communicate, and the dementia would alienate, and the pressure of time and other patients to care for would mean they'd leave her alone. Nothing cruel, just the way of the place. If she needed anything, I knew they'd tend to her. If she cried out or pushed the orange button on the handset, they'd go to check on her. Of course, she wouldn't be pressing the orange button. She wouldn't think to, wouldn't know how to, wouldn't be able to. But anyway, she was sleeping when I left. Nothing was going to happen. It was eight o'clock in the evening. The whole day taken up to get her from one bed to another. I tried to wake her at eight o'clock this morning. She missed lunch and hardly touched the supper. They wanted to isolate the bug before treating with an antibiotic, so no medication either. Nothing but an endless day of waiting and walking, sitting and lying, questions and answers, strangers that weren't me and strange places that weren't home, and all of this in the name of medical care. Was I angry? And who with? Me? Them? Who? And what did it matter if I was? This is how the system works. You're home until you're ill. Then you're not home. Then you're in hospital, even if it felt like an affront, like an insult to do that to her and to me, it was all for the best, wasn't it? And if I went back to the hospital first thing, she might not even realise I'd left. She might not know where she is, but if she sees me, she'll know she's not alone. I'll do that, I thought. I'll just go there. What can they say? So that's what I did. On the first day, she was mostly asleep. On the second day, I arrived just before lunch to find a nurse giving my mother water using a teaspoon. The teaspoon had what looked like clear jelly in the bowl, and the nurse told me she'd been there for an hour or more trying to get my mother to take the jelly. I think she said drink, but you couldn't drink what was on that spoon. It was piled high, and the clear jelly wobbled as the nurse held it to my mother's closed lips. I asked her why she was doing this, and she said the salt team had ordered thickened fluids. She was just doing what she was told. The nurse told me also that the first antibiotic hadn't worked. The consultant had ordered a new and different one and had called the SALT team. Speech and language. They advise on feeding and watering if a patient doesn't seem able to easily take food or drink. Standing there, not knowing quite what to do or say, I noticed there were two laminated notices above Mum's bed pinned to the wall, one yellow and one pink. The first said, Nil by mouth. The second, bizarrely, read no ice cream. I thought maybe there'd been a mistake. The beds had been moved, maybe. The wrong patient given the wrong notices. But no, the nurse said there was no mistake. She told me the test the salt team used. They give the patient a piece of banana to eat. 
They put the banana in the patient's mouth and then they watch to see if the patient chews and swallows without difficulty. That's what they did with mum. Only she had not much idea where she was or who these people were or why they put a bit of banana in her mouth and then stood back and watched. She had an infection, she was on an antibiotic drip and she was barely conscious. She didn't do well with the banana. And because she didn't do well with the banana, they thought that fluids too might be a problem. But there was worse to come. If mum didn't take enough food and liquid, the salt team had recommended peg feeding. That means inserting a tube directly into the stomach wall and pouring liquidized nutrient through it, bypassing the mouth, swallowing and chewing altogether. Yet another tap is inserted in the stomach wall that can be switched off between feeds and to help prevent the frequent infections that result from your insides having a direct link to the outside world. I asked the nurse. Mum wasn't taking enough food and drink. Hardly any, in fact. So I went to the ward sister in charge. I had to wait to see her, but I wasn't going anywhere until I did. Eventually, she came and she said it was not her decision and only the consultant or the SALT team could make a change. So I asked to see the consultant. It was clear relatives are not entitled to see consultants as a matter of course. Perhaps not at all, ever. These are busy people, important people. They know what they're doing and they're not accustomed to being cross-questioned. I said I would wait all day if necessary and all night if it came to that. The rest of the day passed and just before visiting time, when they knew I was serious, a meeting with the SALT team and a completely different consultant was offered in three days' time. I got to speak to someone on the internal phone. I was calm when I told the person at the other end that my mother was perfectly capable of eating normally when well and at home. I said that if any attempt were made to insert a peg feed into my mother's stomach before that meeting, I would fight it. There was a silence at the other end, so I added for good measure that I believed it was wholly wrong for such decisions to be made without reference to me as her carer and without my mother's informed consent. I think I said I would sue. I had to take the call in front of the ward staff, so what I'd said was no secret, but I felt no embarrassment. I told the ward sister I would be there for every meal from now on, that she should tell her nurses to refer to me with any issues or concerns. So that's what I did, every meal of every day. The timing was good. As the new antibiotics kicked in, mum began to brighten and to eat more and drink more. I did nothing to hide what I was up to, even making a show of bringing her a favourite ice cream on a stick covered with chocolate and nuts. By the time of the meeting, Mum had been in hospital for more than a week and was clearly almost fit enough to go home. They used a side office for that meeting, no more than a desk and a chair. In all, there were four of them, a consultant perching on the edge of the desk and three SALT team members, I think. I never did find out what each of them did. There was some chat about a release date, maybe even the next day, and no mention of the peg feed dispute 
until one plucked up the courage to ask me how I intended to take care of Mum once she was home again. I said I would do just as I'd always done, being careful what foods to offer her, aiming for as much as I could in terms of quality of life, adjusting to the situation and to her needs. They asked me if I understood I was feeding at risk, as they put it. I said I did. They looked at me with a kind of helpless pity, but I was unmoved. They got me to sign something, and the meeting was over. Forty-eight hours later, discharge delayed by yet another consultant's opinion, I was wheeling Mum down the long corridors of the hospital towards the entrance and home. I'd given chocolates to the nurses, and I got the impression they approved of me, or at least the stand I'd taken. Because we'd won the fight, in a way. Mum was weak, but she was eating and drinking again, and if her heels were heavily bandaged because bed sores had developed, sores I would only discover that evening that were two inches across, with blood seeping through the dressings, sores that would take a month or more to fix, with daily visits from district nurses to dress and redress the wounds, still I felt we'd won. I was happy she was alive, happy she was coming home, that I hadn't taken her from a care home and killed her in her own home within a few months of becoming her carer. Then it occurred to me, why would this whole process feel like we'd been in a fight, a war zone? Why did my mum sustain injuries from all this over and above the infection? How did a simple UTI end with a 10-day stay in hospital more than enough time for a major operation and a full recovery. Even with me as her advocate, and I began to think, what happens to vulnerable people, the old especially, who have no advocate, no one who knows them well, no one who can fight their corner? The impetus to escalate from infection to peg feeding and nil by mouth is built into the system. When Carrie came that evening to help with the bedtime routine, we were both a bit giddy and had only bad things to say about hospitals. But that wasn't fair. Our health service is second to none. Health workers from all over the world, driven by vocation, because it certainly isn't the money, and all this free at the point of delivery still, despite efforts to dismantle what is a miracle of cooperation and care. No, we weren't being fair. But what is fair to say is that our hospital beds are clogged with vulnerable people who don't need to be there. Vulnerable people who experience interventions too late in the day, and yes, I count myself at fault in that respect, but who fall through the cracks in our care system. That's why John's campaign started by Nikki Gerrard and Julia Jones in 2014, matters so much to people like me. More than being allowed to be with my mum in hospital, I want to be welcomed, consulted, involved, helpful. I want to look after her there, just as I would here at home. That's what the campaign is about. And that's why I've put the contact details on the website, together with a link to Nikki's brilliant new book, What Dementia Teaches Us About Love. Because until there is 
a bridge between social care and hospital care, or better still, a new system altogether, including intravenous rehydration and medication at home, until there is proper funding for our district nurses for regular GP visits to preempt issues arising, incentives for neighbours to check in on the vulnerable, and effective support, even training, for family carers, we will be firefighting, and the system will be burning valuable resources trying to keep up. It's not so much new money we need, though that would help. It's new thinking. Mum is home again now. She's recovering well. I am too, but I'm wary now. You have to be. It's not the way things should be. It's just the way things are. Me and my sister would would visit every couple of months um, when we were younger. And um, she would have sometimes made us orange jelly uh, with with um, little mandarins in it for for a treat, I guess. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I guess I don't remember very much from before she had dementia um, because I was quite young. But I do remember that she was always smiling when I saw her. And she had just the biggest smile. And she would laugh. She would laugh when my dad would make jokes. And she would laugh at me and my sister playing in the garden. I remember once she bought me this jumper that I just begged for. It was bright red with a big picture of a Dalmatian on the front from my favourite film at the time. And there was this name printed underneath the picture that read Josie. And I remember her saying to me, everyone's going to think that's your name. Yeah, I mean, I, I always wish I could have I could have known her better, known who she was, but I can still get to know her. I can get to know her now. You've been listening to Love and Care, written, voiced and produced by the author who must remain anonymous for the sake of his mum. If, as I hope, you've been listening since the beginning, thank you. That's season two, done and dusted. But there's more to come. Season three, for example, where you'll hear from my uncle, mum's brother. We'll talk to experts and passionate advocates. We'll check for plenty of fish net and, well, a whole lot more. So please make it a date. Love and Care is a family affair. The assistant producer is the author's daughter, Leah, 
and the associate producer is the author's sister and now co-carer, Karen. Title music is by Wes Hutchinson, with spoken contribution by Leah, granddaughter to my mum and a singer-songwriter in her own life. This podcast is a Me Too Mama production. All rights reserved. Thank you.